Hello and welcome. Happy Tuesday. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. I'm David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening. No one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode, so let's make this one count. We've got sexual health and consent educator Samantha Biddy, my friend, who... Much to my joy has been joining this show week after week and just shooting the shit with me. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to kick this one off with a rather dramatic talking point. My cat is upset. Find out why in a few moments with Samantha Biddy. <laughs> that sounds like clickbait, doesn't it? My cat is upset and you won't believe what happens next. white stripe in your head i do yeah um my mental health can always be observed externally based on how much bleach is in my hair at any given time is a lot of bleach good or is a lot of bleach bad what i'll say is that my entire head was bleached for like all of 2021 so bleach bad yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, it's more complicated than that, but it doesn't seem more. Yeah, it's just as my cat's upset, Samantha. What's going on, Tomato? He's got a, I don't know, like a, a hairless patch. And in the hairless patch, there's two scabs and he keeps picking at it, licking at it. And so we coned him. We're going to take him to the vet. If it gets worse, we're just kind of watching it. But we coned him. He's wearing a, a cone and he's not happy about this. Do you think... It's uh, like fleas or allergies or some kind of shit. I don't know what it is. I, I'm hoping it's just a cut that he won't leave alone. But he was a fungus kitty. He was found. I was going through his chart because when we moved from San Francisco, the vet gave us his chart. He was picked up by the, um, the real pound, the uh, animal control center. Okay. And I think when little cats are covered in fungus, they just put them down because it's such a laborious thing to treat and it's like not a good prognosis you got to rub the cat with antifungal cream and bathe it and wash it three times a day for like a month right but the spca the humane society in san francisco has so much money this thing is nicer than the ritz carlton there must be a couple old i don't know single lady single dudes who loved cats and had a fortune and just left it to this organization yeah I don't know. When I went there, the stalls are like have fake Golden Gate bridges in them. And it's honestly a beautiful if you should be a, a dog or a cat in the pound in that pound, you should only be so lucky. Anyway, they will treat animals with skin fungus. So the animal control center, we think well, this is all speculative, but based on the chart, I think just gave tomato to them being like, he's your problem. We were going to put him down. So he was transferred there and he was given the treatment for a month. Side note. We think that's why he's so friendly, because he was manhandled every day for a month when he was a kitten, so he got really used to being handled. Right. And people. But long story short, I'm worried he's got fungus again. We know he's prone to it. Oh, little bear. Obviously, we will treat it. We're not going to put him down. But 
It's like it's not hard for a human being who owns the pet to treat. It's just hard for a place that has many pets to treat. It's just not there's no time for it, I guess. I hear you. Well, I really hope that it's something unserious and that he's just like developed allergies cuz I know Lolly she has a whole host of issues health-wise. Um, but one of the things she developed more recently was just allergies and she was she had the thing and she was scratching and it became raw and all of that. And they were like, Oh, she's just like allergic to something. And and here's the, the same steroid she's been on for her asthma. Anyway, this should resolve it. And, and it seems to have done so. So, I mean, you don't know until you take them and he's not, he doesn't go outside. So you don't have to worry about some of the other scarier feral conditions but dude in manhattan he would last there's rats that could take him you know there's rats that carry shanks this is like this is a sheltered cat it's really serious yeah that's how i feel anytime lolly gets it in her head that she wants to like make a run for it she hasn't done this in years and years and years obviously but anytime she does that i'm like remember do you not remember how they found you (laughs) like what what the conditions of your life were like you were you had no teeth like shit was was wild for her i was like you wouldn't last a second like no but maybe she would because she's 16 and still catching mice and still you know throwing hands so maybe i don't know maybe lolly's a secret thug but yeah tomato is way too precious he's way too precious he did catch a mouse once he was fussing in the corner and Miranda's like, oh no, he spotted a cockroach again. Mm. She goes over there and he's got a little mouse, you know, in his teeth freaking out. And Miranda screams and Tomato being the softy that he is, Miranda's scream scared him. So he dropped the mouse. The mouse got away. And as far as I know, that's the only time he's ever caught in a mouse. So I think it was the best day and the worst day of his life because it got away. It's cute how they like, I don't know, it's cute or it's sick or I don't know, but they like play with them to death like it's not like it's not like they you know bite them and like go for the jugular they literally will bat it until it's dead and and that's like lolly has no teeth so when she kills a mouse i'm like i don't know what vicious behavior had to occur for you to take this mouse's life but it's essentially like they paw it they paw it to death yeah it's a bit sick i mean they are they are sick cats they they murder for fun yeah. But then again, so do we. You know, we pretend that we don't, but we do. We do. I mean, maybe you don't, maybe I don't, but humans. I mean, some do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, look at history. We're not the least murderous species on the planet. Look at present. Look at present. We don't have to look at history. We can look at present. And look at future. Look at it all. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure that. Well, so, I mean, we, we always say cats are awful and murderous, but maybe they're just complex like us. I never say cats are awful and murderous. You say they're wonderful and murderous. <laughs> I would never say, I would never speak ill of a cat because I heavily identify with them. Um, but I have human consciousness, so it's a little bit different. Exactly. Like your worst impulses. You're like, uh, should I go do this horrible thing or will I just stay in bed and kind of sleep through my alarm? We decide to stay in bed, you know? I mean, you and me, not everyone, but... For now. For now. Oh, boy. For now. <laughs> yeah, so he's... But we bought him a little um, a little shirt today. We're going to try putting on the shirt. I don't know if I like it, but... I love when animals are wearing clothes. It's so stupid, yeah. It's so that his wound gets covered and he doesn't attack it, but uh, I don't like when people dress up their little dogs in, like, tutus. It 
bothers me because I'm, I don't know, a jerk. Tell me more. Why does it bother you? Probably sexism. (laughs) 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 If if you want to pick it apart, it's because I hate women, Samantha. No, I don't know. It's just people with the small dogs and the tutus. I'm like feeling so. I'm just thinking of the ancestors of this little dog and a tutu, wolves. How do you know wolves didn't want to have a look? I'm just thinking if you meet a wolf in the woods and you're like, hey, and and you somehow elevated the wolf to have consciousness and intelligence like a person. You're like, hey, we'll trade you domestication. We'll give you disgusting, dried, rendered, preservative-filled kibble. And in exchange, you'll be shrunken, not strong, unable to kill prey, and you'll have to wear a tutu. Do you think that wolf would say yes? I'm not sure because... There's this species of crab under the sea where they are. And um, are we going to break out into song side note? Go, sorry, go ahead. Go. No, no, no. It literally collects like ocean garbage to like decorate itself so that it, it's not, there's no other reason. Like it's not for protection. It's not for it to have a different home. It's like this crab just, it just likes to have like a little bit of, you know, razzle dazzle. And I'm just like, if this crab has the like it's its self actualization is rooted in like having an outfit what's to say a wolf or a dog or a cat doesn't want it? like there's different outfits that lolly has worn that for sure are like gender affirming to her and like i just i feel i feel that maybe not all the same way not all humans want to have a look right but i think some no i the only argument i have against the tutu given your point is i reserve the right to be curmudgeonly it's it's an identity you know i just wanted you to admit it i just wanted you to say that the only reason you don't like it is because you're a hater and like for the rest of us it is like the most joy we can experience in our current layer of hell like the only nice thing about winter is seeing babies in those like the one piece things where they just look like a star because they can't move because they can't move yeah (laughs) they're in their little like puffer onesie and like dogs wearing coats like it's the only thing that keeps me going so fine and hermit you don't have to look to a special species of crab i mean hermit crabs pretty common they're fashionistas you know they they are always looking for the perfect shell Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm I feel that. And I, the one thing I will say though, is I I watched a documentary once about the people who like paint their dogs. Like, you know, the ones where they dye them and they do all the like, like fuckery with their fur and and compete to make them look like. No. Oh, do you not know about that? There's like massive competitions. I don't know if it's like global, but I know it's in the United States where people have like their whole life is devoted to taking dogs like poodles and things like that with lots of fur and like dyeing them. And the the competitions will have like a theme. It'll be like cat in a hat or like Alice in Wonderland. And people like turn their dog into like entire scenes from these like different things. And that I'm a little bit like, okay, I don't think your dog wants to be like fucking purple and have like a portrait of, Martin Luther King on its butt. Like, I don't think that. <laughs> I don't know, but I could speculate. So that I kind of have an issue with, but like not so much so that I, I think it says a lot more about the human. Yeah. Like, what yeah, of course. Are, I mean, what dog is going to wear Martin Luther? It's no, it's the human, right? Uh, yes. Or it's like, I feel the same way about people who are like on the subway with like a parrot. I'm like, okay, like, 
But then I just feel, I just have empathy. I'm like, oh, okay. Like at least my need for external validation isn't that deep. Well, speaking of, well, I want to address the parent on the shoulder. There's a woman where near where I used to live in San Francisco, who used to walk around with a cat on her head. And I loved her with all my heart. She was um, an aggressive human being. She was not one to be talked to. I tried once. And then I would watch strangers try because she kind of hung out on my block. And it was always a great joy when strangers would be like, you have a cat on your head. Hi. And she'd fuck you. You know, she was, she was great. She was honestly a legend. But animal ownership. This is where I think it starts to get ugly. And maybe it's the reason I hate the tutu. Because I think the things we hate in other people are a reflection of, of what we hate in ourselves, maybe. You know, that's, it's a common. I'm not saying everything you hate in others is a reflection of something that you hate in yourself. But I, I do think that is a common quality. A lot of people who annoy me, I think, well, they're, they look bad or they're weird or they're desperate in the same ways that I am that I try to pretend that I'm not. And that's why I don't like them. Like, that's why it's very common for people not to like others who are exactly like them. Oh, no, for sure. I, I hear that. I think it's because they're a reflection of their bad qualities, too. And you think, oh, do I look like that? Am I embarrassing like that? You know, but animal ownership. I think I was talking to a vegan about this and he's like, all pet ownership is unethical. The fact that we domesticated animals to love us, you know, it's, it's a simplification. Animals were domesticated for various reasons, but modern Pet ownership, especially in a city where, you know, all your needs are taken care of and you're not hunting, you're not growing your own food, you don't need a mice to protect the grain silo, you know, uh, we essentially have these animals and keep them alive to love us. And you might think, okay, well, my pet's neutered, so I'm not perpetuating the cycle, but your desire to have that pet means that breeders will always exist, that these things will always... And I just don't think that it's a good look as a species, that we've domesticated animals to love us. Like, what? that's, that's awful. That, are we that lonely, that desperate, you know? And so when I see the tutu, I'm like, oh, my God, that's such an expression of what I think the ugliest part of pet ownership is. We trapped them in our house, Samantha. If you trapped a person in your house to love you, no one's going to give you another person. If you get caught, you're going to jail. I mean, that's what my parents did by having me. Fair enough. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I can't form a fully compelling argument about why I, I, I just don't feel, I feel like there's so many other things we could focus on. Yes. I own a pet, Samantha. I'm saying it's unethical and I do it anyway. I eat meat. I think killing animals to eat them's unethical. I do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, multiple truths can exist, I guess. Exactly. I, I you know, I think it's dishonest to say that a vegan is, you know, no more ethical than us. I think they are. I think they're right. I just, I guess I'm a shitty person or I guess multiple truths can exist or whatever. And I, I feel the same way about trapping a pet in your house to love you. If there's something fundamentally wrong about it, but I love my kitty and he wouldn't, you know, and he loves me. Does he have a choice? Not really, but he still does. I suppose there's always a choice, you know. I don't, yeah, I, I've met really shitty cats. Like I've met cats that, don't do the loving thing so there's flaws in the argument sure no no it's, it's not a perfect argument i just mean <laughs> i think there's something fundamentally ugly about pet ownership but especially with cats where you trap them in your house if they're indoor cats uh and, and a dog wearing a tutu i'm like that animal is so trapped way more trapped even though it's out in the public in the tutu there's something about forcing your cat to be cute like that that i don't know so there's my other side of it there's my more rational side of it, it there's holes in it for sure but it's not just that I hate tutus and therefore hate women, which was your point. No, 
<laughs> it was not. I am going to wake up in the middle of the night with like such a, a valid argument as to why it's like totally fine and acceptable for us to have domesticated animals. Like I'm going to watch every video essay <laughs> that talks about the history of animal domestication. Actually, speaking of when I had my surgery recently, um, my ex partner is the person who came to the hospital to like take care of me and bring me home. And he'd like gone to the hospital gift shop to like get me like a not gift shop, but like the whatever the convenience store that's in the hospital to get me different things. And he got me like vapes and he got me like treats. And one of the things he got me was a National Geographic where the cover story was like the secret life of cats. And this I haven't read it yet. Um, but it talks about what we're talking about, like the domestication of cats. And so I'm going to fucking read it and I'm going to get back to you. Well, I had a, a professor on the show who wrote a book about the African wild cat and how it, how it domesticated itself. They always say, which is a total, it's, it's an oversimplification, but he literally wrote the book on it. Uh, and it is kind of fascinating, but it's, it's not, it's not really, it's not really too much of a surprise. There was at the beginning of agriculture and like the Fertile Crescent in Africa and the Middle East, there was a small wildcat and the ones that were more likely to be okay with humans that would kill pests would get fed by the humans and they would kill the pests that the humans would have around because of the farming and it was, you know, it was over time, but it wasn't like wolves where they were heavily selected for, um, for kindness, I guess, because wolves were a serious danger to people, whereas the African wildcat is basically a little kitty. I mean, you wouldn't want to pet it, but it's not like a it's not like a wolf which will go right for the jugular and kill you. So wolves really needed to be like bred, like the ones that showed traits where they wouldn't hurt humans. Um, so the dog's ancestors really were domesticated by people and really kind of selected by people. The aggressive ones were killed. The non-aggressive ones were bred, whereas cats were just kind of hanging around. And then the ones that hung around bred with the ones that hung around. And that's how they became domesticated. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the history of it. But I'm sure there's more to it. And, and the whole secret life side, I have no idea about. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, like, patriarchy and monogamy, right? It's like, well, we better domesticate these women because otherwise they're going to be out here doing whatever they want to do. If women have too much fun, society will collapse. And it's like, they could be a threat to us. So let's get them in the house and, and all of that. And I, and I, when you talk about the self domestication, that's, I don't know. I relate to that. Cause I'm kind of like, okay, I hated being a child. I hated being under the rule or control of anyone, especially men. And yet here I am at 37 looking for a daddy. So it's like, what, <laughs> It's, it, it might be inexplicable. I don't know. <laughs> it might be. I wonder if, you know, dogs represent the patriarchy and cats represent, you know, emancipation from it. I don't know. I don't know. This could be my book. I don't like dogs, but it's mostly the picking up of the poop. And people are like, oh, but you have to scoop the box with the cat. It's not warm to the touch. That I can't deal with. Ew. Oh, okay. okay, I don't want to go down this road, but I agree with you and that I think there's something so, like, embarrassing about taking care of a dog outside. Because, like, the thing, too, is, like, when you're doing the cat care, it's, like, it's happening in the privacy of my home. There's no witnesses. And the cat's doing its own thing. You're just kind of cleaning up after the fact. Yeah. It's when you get the bag on your hand, Samantha, and you grab it with your fingers, it's fucking warm. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah, it sicks me out. It's the temperature for me. If it were cold, I wouldn't. It's not the texture. It's not the smell. 
Sorry, I know I'm bothering you. I'll stop. I'll stop. But that's why I don't like dogs. <laughs> oh, man. And that's why we're also both childless. Like, it's not. <laughs> yep. I'm getting my tubes tied when I'm 40, I think. I promised my mom I'd wait till I was 40. And I've promised my mom a lot of things. Like, I won't get tattoos. I won't do this. I'll marry a Jewish girl. All that. I haven't done any of it. But this one, I'm like, okay, fine. I can wait till I'm 40 till I get a vasectomy. I actually made the recommendation to my doctor the last time I was there to get a referral to a gyno because I want to get fixed. And it was funny because, you know, my doctor is very respectful. We have a very good relationship. We've been together for years and I received zero pushback whatsoever, which is not a common experience for women. Like, yeah, typically speaking, like not that long ago, doctors would push back on IUDs if anyone hadn't had children yet or were under 30. Like, but I sat with it and I was like, you know, I'm of an age where they're actually not going to push back on me on this. Like they're going to be like, yeah, well, you probably, if you wanted to have kids, you probably would have made choices to take you to that place. So I was like, I want to get fixed. And he was like, all he said to me was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, well, you know, um, Typically, we don't do tubal ligations as much because we more we err on the side of vasectomy because it's less invasive. It's reverse all these things. He's like, but you don't have like a, a set partner, so you know. And I was like, okay, wow, shade. <laughs> Different kind of shade than you were expecting, though. Yeah, and like, but again, he's so non-judgmental. Like, he will give me requisitions for STI tests, like for a year and just be like, here you go. So you don't have to come back in every time you want to do an STI panel. And I'm like, appreciate it. What do you think this pushback is, especially younger, uh, you know? Paternalism in healthcare, right? And the infantilization of women. Um, you know, I, I, a friend of mine, a lot of my friends had their kids super young, do it that way you will. And at like age, you know, 29, 30, they were like, I want to get my tube side. Like I have a kid. I don't want any more kids. I don't want to worry about this. I don't want to be on hormones for the rest of my life, like for the next 30 years, literally. And just push back, push back, push back. It's like, oh no, you'll change your mind. Or, nah, nah, nah. And, and I think, you know, this heteronormative assumption that like all women and people with uteruses like want to have children or like will if like the circumstances were just, you know, in aligned and it's really, and then yet the, the healthcare systems will charge people who do want to have kids who don't have a, a sperm producing partner, thousands and thousands of dollars to get pregnant. So it's, it's really, it's all very, um, it's all very about the control of, uh, women and, and the assumption that we can't, we're incapable of making that decision. It's like wolves, you know, they're, they're incapable of not attacking people. And so we'll control them completely. Whereas cats were left to make their own decisions, really. And then we have the forced sterilization of, of, certain communities of like women and people with uteruses. So it's like, yeah, it's all, it's all very paternalistic and, and uh, colonial and, and all of those. It's all the usual suspects basically. Interesting. I, I didn't relate the pushback that people stereotypically get when they're younger and they ask for that surgery versus like forced sterilization in various communities, especially over the last, I don't know, hundred years. And present, like it's still a very present issue, yeah. Oh no, it's still happening, but I mean, it was such a normal thing 60, 70 years ago, like doctors who did it probably didn't even think about it. Now it's like, 
now we know, but it still happens. I don't know. Well, we knew then. It's just, yeah. I, n- I never related those two is all, I guess. Mm-hmm. How are you recovering? Um, I am recovering okay. I uh, The first week was really rough because there was no, like, it just was staying consistently bad and, and sometimes worse. Um, I also have stairs inside my apartment and I live alone. So it's been, it was really hard. And then there started to be some improvement. And so now it feels like it's steadily improving. Um, I'm pushing it. As, as I do. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing was that I chose to recover without narcotics and that was the right choice for me. Um, it was wild how much the healthcare providers pushed for me to, to receive pain management because I came out of surgery, like hysterically crying. Like it was really fucking painful. And they're like, we can make you more comfortable. We can make you more comfortable. And I'm like, this is actually about making you more comfortable. I have made this choice. Like the number of times I had to say, like, I am a drug addict. I do not want to feel the effects of narcotics. And I don't want to feel the effects of narcotics wearing off. Like that was, so I'm like, I rather be in this amount of physical pain than to navigate what the kind of like emotional and physical implications of me taking um, narcotic pain management. So I got through that window and now I feel really good insofar as like, that was the right choice. And, um, but it was gnarly, bro. Like it was, it was really scary for a bit. I was like, Ooh, like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I'm looking forward to having my like mobility and flexibility back uh, for sex, for dancing, for like a lot of different things. Softball. Softball. Yeah. Like everything, like all the ways, like I, I'm very, I'm very like body oriented and, and having that type of disability, this type of disability, um, which I've had before, uh, when I broke my ankle 10 years ago and like had to learn to walk again and like all this other stuff. It's like, I'm very aware of how it has impacted me in sobriety, um, compared to prior, uh, and the ways in which I use my body to process my emotions and all of those pieces. So yeah, it's been a really, um, interesting experience, but yeah, more than anything, I'm just looking forward to getting back shots again without being in pain um, in my legs. So you talk about the hospital pushing pain management, basically narcotics on you, mm-hmm. and it being more about their comfort than yours. It's kind of an interesting frame. You're saying in many cases, nurses, doctors, whatever, they'd rather have you not a problem, so to speak, like not in pain, which would potentially be a problem for them, even though it probably wasn't. What exactly do you mean when you say it's more about their comfort than yours? It was a problem because I was, like I said, I was like hysterical. Um, I, you know, I, I err on the side of empathy uh, versus like, you know, as, as, as an accusation against them. I think that a lot of people go into healthcare because they want to make people feel better and because they feel affected when they don't. And so... I do think that there was that element, that human element of like, here's this woman, she's writhing in pain, um, very upset. 
and and that affected them as well. It, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm adding to their workload or I'm making, you know, I'm caught. I'm, it, I don't know. I don't think it was necessarily that. I think that maybe for some practitioners it is uh, because it's like, here, just take your meds and, and go away. Um, the irony of which of when I was actually abusing drugs and in legitimate pain, had injuries, whatever, they would like accused me of being a pill seeker, which I was. <laughs> None of like those things were not available to me. Um, whereas now where I'm like actively like, no, I do not want this. I've communicated that every step of the way. Um, I do think, yeah, I think that there is a, an empathetic element to it where they're like, this can make you feel better and I want you to feel better. Yeah, but it also would make you feel and be in much worse health potentially. So in a longer term uh, capacity. Yeah. And I think too, like my sobriety, I, a lot of my sobriety in like the hardest moments, the thing that has kept me sober is remembering how terrible I felt when I was hung over, when I was coming down off drugs and, and that pain, I'm like, that pain is greater than the pain of whatever it is that I'm experiencing. That is, that is uh, motivating me to perhaps use to, you know, it's like, fortunately, I have developed enough coping tools that I've not used drugs or alcohol in so long. I did have a drinking dream last night, though. Um, do you still have them? No, but I have drug dreams. Drug, okay, so using dreams anyway. I have. It's not a common thing, but, but go on, go on. I have them fairly often, to be honest, like arguably. And the common theme in them is me negotiating with myself about how I've, I'm still sober. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like, okay, yeah. Like I, I drank, but I didn't get drunk. So therefore there hasn't been like a breach in my, you know, duration of sobriety or the integrity of my sobriety has not been compromised or it's only, um, I've only compromised the integrity of my sobriety if I've used drugs. Whereas like, and it's just such a weird thing and it's always so real. And I always wake up like, did I get drunk? Like I have, to, and it's such a, because I spend so much time negotiating in the dream that I wake up with the same feeling of like, oh my gosh, did I get drunk? And in the dream last night, I was like able to make good decisions while I was drunk. So that was like, that was like my rationale for why I could start drinking. And it's like, oh no, look, you're different now. You can, you can drink and still make good decisions. And so all of those kind of negotiations that, you know, like alcoholic math, like that kind of <laughs> those negotiations, um, I then still am left with the remembrance of, I never want to feel the pain of a hangover again. And so here we are, even if I could make good decisions while drinking and using drugs, even if I didn't destroy my life and the lives of others, I physiologically don't want to have that experience. Like I, I can't even handle it when I've had too much like fried chicken and I wake up with like sodium hangover. What the fuck am I going to do if I drank poison? I call that being salted when you wake up and you're just like puffy and your <laughs> mouth is dry and no water can fix it. You've just had too much salt. Uh, but when people don't understand this negotiating thing, I always remember I was maybe like, I don't know. I, I've been sober four and a half years, but it was the time I was sober before. If it's been four and a half years when you and I first started like working together, it was like less than two or something like that. Yeah, I just lied to you. It's been four years and two months. I don't know why I rounded up to four and a half. No, but that's like that's significant. Like that's fucking wild. Wow. Yeah, it has been a wild ride. 
But I remember not four years and two months ago, but the previous time I was sober before my last big relapse, um, which lasted several months. I remember around that time, or maybe for me, because I'm not cool, White Claw started getting popular, like these LaCroix new seltzers. There's now every day a new seltzer comes out that has zero calories because it's mixed with aspartame and some sweetener or whatever. Uh, and they taste great. I remember when White Claw started becoming popular and you're like looking at the back of the thing. It's only 70 calories and you're doing the math like, oh, one of the things about drinking is it caused me to gain weight. And if I just have like two or three of these a day, I'm not going to gain weight. Like, and, and then I'm thinking, what the fuck am I thinking? I'm at that time several months sober. It's that that's a really palpable example of the of the of the bargaining that that just makes no sense that goes on in the alcoholic's mind. I really think like, yeah, like recovered, recovered addict math is some shit. Like it's really, really, um, but I think we talked about this last time about like, you know, the cases, the, the sound valid in a court of law cases we can build. Yeah. Well, I'm not sober from all substances. Mm -hmm. Some alcoholics judge me for this. It's fine. Whatever. I don't touch any substances I had a problem with, but my, my new thing in the last few years is like no white powders, not putting anything in the nose. And I was at Burning Man, a fucking course. And of course, the story isn't true because I would never admit to doing drugs for legal purposes because drugs are illegal. So it's a parody story. Everything I'm about to tell you is not true. But my friend hands me this um, ketamine nasal spray. He had either, I don't know how he got it. I think it's a medical thing you can buy on over the counter in Mexico. Ketamine treatments for depression and fibromyalgia and all kinds of shit. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I've never had a problem with K. It's not what I consider like drugs that I've abused, whatever. And I, I, try, I did it, and of course I didn't really do it, parody purposes. And I didn't do very much, and I haven't done it since. And I'm, a, I'm at peace with that. I'm, I still consider myself sober from alcohol and all that kind of stuff. But the, the math I do in my head afterward, because it's not a white powder, you know, it, it's like it still happens, and I don't know. Someone, when I told them this story, who's also an alcoholics, called me California sober, which made me really mad for some reason. I don't know why I hate when people say that. Have you heard this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People will say it in their like dating app bio, like Cali sober. But I thought Cali sober was when you, you don't drink, but you'll use like shrooms or weed or whatever. I didn't know that party drugs were part of being Cali sober. Yeah. But uh, I'll have to look it up on Urban Dictionary. I think, you know, I personally did have a problem with ketamine. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And it's highly, I know it's not physically addictive, but I have a friend. She's one of my closest friends who ha is a, has a severe problem with ketamine. So I've seen people be fully addicted to it. I know I have to be careful. I probably won't do it again. You know, like I'm, I don't know. I have in my mind, these irrational distinctions, like I won't touch strong painkillers, won't touch benzos, won't touch uh, alcohol, MDMA, anything I had a problem with, I won't touch. But like, I'm more open to things that I never had a problem with. But then I'm like, I don't want to try any new things because I, you know, I just, I have, I, I know, I don't know if you look down on me for this, but, but it, it happened. I don't. <laughs> oh, wait, it didn't happen. Parody purposes, Samantha. Right. I mean, for me, like I, I've never, I never look down or have judgment about people's substance use. Fair enough. Right. I, I just, I, I don't have it in me because substance use, and I actually, I was talking about this with a client recently. The thing about substance use is that 
had I not developed a dependency on drugs and alcohol from age literally 12 to 28, I would probably be dead, right? The thing about substances is that they are tools and we use the tools that work. And sometimes we continue using tools even after they've stopped working, but they're, they're serving a purpose in our survival, you know, and I think that for me to, to judge it is really hypocritical when I'm, I'm a harm reductionist, right? Like I, I think that I also believe in people's, um, their dignity to make their own choices. And sometimes those choices have consequences and, and, you know, good or bad, quote unquote, good or bad consequences. Like all this to say, like, who the fuck am I, you know, like, and I've been chain smoking cigarettes for three years to manage symptomatic trauma. A lot of people, you know, sober, sober, sober people are like, oh, well, you're dependent on nicotine or you're dependent on caffeine. It's like, yeah, the fuck I am. <laughs> and I'm also not dead. Yeah. Or in prison. So that to me, you know, it's like, so I do not. I- I'm not asking. You know what? I was kind of asking you to absolve me. I was about to just say I wasn't looking for you to absolve me, but I, I was. So I'll stop. As a sober bro, what I will say, though, out of out of love and care as a consideration is that I heard this analogy once that has always resonated with me is like, if you imagine us as being like four garbage cans, <laughs> we always only have three lids, right? And so sometimes... <laughs> Why four and three? Like, I, I love the math. You know what? Four and three is perfect. It's perfect. I love it. It works. You know, and so I think that the addict, the addict mind is is these four garbage cans and three lids. And so sometimes we move them lids around. And sometimes the garbage can that's open is sex or money or whatever. I would be weary of substances that are mind altering in that way as as a recovered ketamine addict. I love what they call them in the UK. They call them ket heads in the UK. I I think that like we use substances because we like the effects produced. Sure. And I think there's always a way to accomplish those desired effects without substances for, you know, with in mind that there are always co- consequences. Like, you know, like I have kinky sex, right? And I recently was broken up with by someone because I was triggered during that, um, also this episode needs a, so many content warnings. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was triggered and it was a casual relationship. And so I had a really hard time communicating with this person about what was happening. And it really spiraled out of control. And the relationship ended up concluding in a, not a nice way. Um, I have compassion and empathy for that person and, and their choices. What I will say though, is my side of things was like, okay, it was irresponsible for me to be engaging in a certain type of behavior that could cause, or that could create that outcome, which I is known to me um, in a situation that wasn't necessarily the safest emotionally to do that. And so, you know, it's like that garbage can. I was like, all right. And now I'm in a place where I'm like, all right, going to move the lid. It's going to go on this garbage can until the conditions are better for me to engage in that as a tool. And as alcoholics, like one of the lids is not, as long as we're sober from booze, one of the lids is not able to be transferred to the other cans. So we're really three cans with two lids. You know, that can's reserved with the, so we don't have as much room to play. I don't know. I always, I have a joke with my my wife about uh, when I get into trouble, you know, like trouble, whether it's, 
you know, hooking up with somebody I said I wasn't going to hook up with, dyeing my hair in the middle of the night, whatever, whatever kind of fuckery that I get into to like, you know, soothe the whatever. I, there's this joke about me being a raccoon with a garbage can. It's like, oh, I got in the trash. And so if I'm, like, if I'm doing bad behaviors, and again, like what I, is considered a bad behavior for me present day is so fucking vanilla and mild and like inconsequential compared to the type of trash. I, I was like a dumpster diver. Like I'll send her like the raccoon and trash can emojis just to be like oh, getting in the trash. And, you know, there's a lot of love and compassion and understanding there about it. But yeah, that's like... I I never assume though that my alcoholism trash can is securely fastened because raccoons like you think about Toronto and how we develop these like whole ass mechanisms to uh, make the compost bins like hard to get into they have like twisting things and what the raccoons evolved dog they evolved to learn to twist the thing handle so I'm like my alcoholic raccoon could evolve to twist the handle on the garbage can and so I have to always be at least, you know, like the ocean, have a steady fear and respect of, of my, uh, of my alcoholism. So. Yeah. That's why I don't swim in the ocean, Samantha. I've seen what's in there. I've seen what's in there. I've watched Shark Week. I've watched the Titanic. I know what can happen. Uh, I'm going to show you something that's making me feel very nerdy, but, um, it's a little circuit board. Okay. It's called a raspberry pie. But the wider thing is when I have a shit ton to do creatively, Mm-hmm. I'll get distracted by computer shit and I'll waste time like coding and learning things that would have been part of my old job. And then three hours goes by and I didn't edit the podcast or I didn't book it or there's some, I'm working on, I can't talk too much about it, but I'm working on maybe a deal to get back on the radio. We'll see TBD on that. Very exciting. But like, I, you know, I have to, I have to do a pitch and you know, my pitch is due soon. And here I am. I bought a new circuit board and, and it sounds silly, but for me, it's like, okay, this is a rather healthy way. Like, okay, at least I'm just wasting my time playing on my computer. It's the nerdy equivalent of video games. Video games don't really do it for me, but it's essentially the same thing. And yeah, I like the trash analogy because it's like, yes, I'm wasting my time. But I'm not drinking. I'm not doing, well, I mentioned doing ketamine three months ago. But I'm generally, I'm not doing hard drugs, especially not ones that I've, have caused me difficulty in the past for parody purposes. Uh, and I hear what you're saying for you. It's kinky sex for me. It's circuit boards. We're basically the same person. Right. Um, I would, <laughs> I would say that at least, or no, I, I definitely have my own time wasting behaviors that are like self-fulfilled. Like I don't, it's not just kinky sex. Like there's plenty of things that I do to waste time. Um, or not even waste. I don't even know. I don't even see that as a waste of time. You're like skills building. Like that's dope. I know, but it's also like a little protection, Samantha. I'm not engaged with my current career, knowing that if I keep one foot in the door with my old career and I run out of money, I can always go back to it. But I'm not really like by distracting myself for hours at a time of building the skills of my old career, I'm not giving myself, you know what? I'm just lecturing myself and it's not even completely true. I'm allowed to have hobbies. I'm allowed to not spend 20 hours a day doing radio, but that's, that's the fear. That's the, that I'm, that I'm not giving myself to what I need to give myself to. And keeping my foot in the door as like a safety, as a protective, as a, you know, I don't want to be unemployed and run out of money in New York. That's a scary city to run. I mean, the one thing that you need here, as Fran Lebowitz said so beautifully when she got asked at a, at a conference with um, 
Martin, uh, with Scorsese, uh, a young person says, said to her, what do you recommend to young people moving to New York for the first time? And she just screams at the top of her lungs, bring money. Money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would not, I would try not to pathologize your behaviors every time. You're telling a Jew not to pathologize their own behavior. A little, okay. All right, Samantha. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> you know what I <laughs> know what I mean though I think that like we can it's kind of like people with attachment style stuff it's like yeah attachment style is like a valid you know meaning making tool for our behaviors and also sometimes we just have interests sometimes we just procrastinate sometimes we have to do something creative in a different way to generate the creativity we need somewhere else. I, I don't think it's always a, a plot of self-sabotage and painting everything that way is actually going to prevent you from identifying when you are in those self-sabotage moments, i.e. Our, our private text messages where you're, you know, shit talking your opportunities. And I'm like, dog why i well uh, we'll talk about that later <laughs> you're and we will uh we will <laughs> you cut that out if you want to no I, I won't cut it out but i mean people will be like what the fuck are they talking about but i won't cut it out but um if oh imagine if any of my texts ever got leaked i would be so fucking canceled and we've talked about this before about our <laughs> private conversations that we're allowed sure. to have based on our different identity groups but like yeah no i'd be in big trouble dude the anti-gay homophobic vitriol that me and my and i have to add this as a disclaimer me and my gay brother send each other <laughs> the names he calls me and the names i call him uh if that ever got leaked i'd be done <laughs> out of context you know it's like everything out of context is is potential and he's worse than me but i'm pretty bad but only in text to him but i just want to touch upon something because i i hope that i'm giving you a gift right now but my suspicion is that i'm not because it's a fairly common word. You were talking about procrastinating. Have you heard of the phrase procrastinating? Of course, yes. Okay, fuck. Well, could you imagine you hadn't and I just gave you that gift? I would be pretty bad at my job True. if I didn't if I hadn't heard that. But um I don't I don't think masturbation is ever procrastination? No, I don't. Because like when you even if you look at if you bring it down to like the science of it, like the chemical science of, of self-pleasuring and, and all of that, it's like, that's going to benefit you. I'll tell you why it's procrastinating for me. It's not the act. It's not the 15 minutes to myself. 15? 10, 5, 3. I like three minutes, like three, like not even a whole song. Oh my God. Jealous. <laughs> for, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But, uh, it's afterward, I don't know, I think men get flooded, or, or penis wielders get flooded with these chemicals after you, I think for evolutionary reasons, because, you know, you know, our ancestors were pretty aggro, like chimpanzees and stuff, and if they just chilled out after they ejaculated, you know, the, the female would go away and maybe not get hurt or die in the, in, the, in, the, in the skirmish that would happen afterward. I'm talking about, you know, monkeys. <laughs> I'm talking about our very distant ancestors. But for whatever reason, men get flooded with these chemicals afterward. Penis holders get flooded with these chemicals afterward from their brain saying, yo, bro, chill the fuck out. Time to sleep. 
Exactly. And so the reason it's procrastinating for me is I'm all like, ah, I got to do my work. I got to do something. Ah, I've been putting this off too long. I go and masturbate. And then it's giving me the, uh, the, the right, giving myself permission to have a snooze, lay down, watch some TV. So it's, it's a way to like create the procrastinator's mindset of <laughs> validating the behavior of procrastinating and feeling relaxed while doing it. That's why it's procrastination for me, not the act of masturbating. And, you know, you're, you're talking to an anti-capitalist. And so for me, the whole notion of procrastination is, is fabricated. And I am all about resting and sleep. So I'm like, oh, how wonderful you were able, your body and mind were able to align enough for you to rest. And, you know, like that to me is not a bad thing. I, I just, it's just not a bad And yeah, we're all reconciling with our responsibilities and obligations and capitalism and blah, 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 blah. And people are always like, oh, it's a privilege to rest. We need to get that the fuck out of our heads. If King Charles II wants to take a snooze, who's going to stop him? So we should we have the right to snooze as well. We we have the right to snooze. And um, yeah, capitalism and and oppression asks us to be uh, alienated from our bodies and ourselves. And so anything we can do to realign ourselves with like our body and our like spiritual and, and chemical needs, I'm in support of. I agree. And the less you have, the less society gives you the right to snooze. And that's bullshit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go have a snooze, Samantha. <laughs> Me too. <laughs>